Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your weekly true crime paranormal podcast with me, Blake Lambert Hack. This season I'm covering cases from New York City and tonight I have a killer episode, pun intended, but before we get into that, happy Pride. It's still Pride Month. Today is the last day of Pride, so definitely want to wish everybody a queer rest of your year. I had an amazing Pride weekend last weekend, and I hope you did as well. I saw seven drag shows in two days, so a jam-packed couple of days. I didn't go to the parade this year because I was at a rooftop party. Sorry about it. However, I'm sad I missed out on getting a Barbie fan because they were handing out Barbie fans at the parade. So I saw one at the rooftop because they came from the parade and it was one of those like cardboard fans on a stick, but with the Barbie bee and some rainbows. It was really cute. Also, I had saw someone painted a mansion Barbie pink and styled it like the Barbie dream house, which is really cute. And if that's not like where the premiere party is going to be, I'm disappointed. Like I know it's an Airbnb you can rent out, but I really want them to have, you know, go see the movie, have the premiere, and then go party at this pink palace. Why not? But also, how do I get an invite? Because I want to go so fucking bad. I will fly to Malibu. I believe that's where it's at. I am pumped for the Barbie movie. Pumped. I was reading somewhere that someone was like, more as more information comes out about the Barbie movie, the less I want to go see it. And I'm the complete opposite. The more I, that comes out about this Barbie movie, the more I want to see it. It looks so camp. It looks so fun. I am very, very excited. Because you can't take it seriously. The movie's not taking itself seriously. It's just going to be a fun, wild ride. And I do hope there's going to be cameos. Like, obviously, we've already seen, like, Issa Rae's in it, Kate McKinnon, uh, Simu, all these other celebrities. But I want cameos. Like Trixie Mattel, Casey Musgraves, Tyra Banks. Kelly Sheridan. Just some fun people who have either like dressed as Barbie, voiced Barbie in animated movies, or like for Trixie <laughs> collects Barbies. Also, there's a Barbie cafe in New York City, which looks really cute. It's definitely geared more towards kids. Like you bring your own Barbies and have like a nice little lunch. So it's not like great food or anything but it's so cute on the outside. Also, there's this huge debate on what to see first that weekend. Do you go see Barbie or Oppenheimer first? And what I'm reading is many are saying Oppenheimer, go see that first, and then Barbie. Like, go see the tragic long-ass movie first, and then lighten it up with Barbie after. But for me, they're just not compatible films I don't want to see them in the same day I love seeing like three movies in one day I sit me down plow through them I love it but these two movies specifically not for me 
not in the same day. I'm going to see both. Movies like Oppenheimer need time to, like, I need time to mentally prepare and have a grace period after the movie to process and relax. Barbie is just going to be a whole friend group pre-gaming, having a gale time, and I cannot wait. So it's just two different vibes completely. Also, I can't wait to see how many Barbies and Kens we see for Halloween. I bet it's, oh my god, I dozens, if not hundreds, of people are going to dress up as Barbie or Ken. I'm not mad about it. I just want people to get creative. Like, just don't go as pink Barbie or stereotypical Ken. I was seeing a website where you can look up the Ken and Barbie that was released the year you were born. So maybe do that. Switch it up a little bit. Be 90s Ken. Be 70s Barbie. Something a little different. But I know it's going to be big this year. What else did I do this Pride Month, I should say? I saw queer pop star Jordy last night at this really stripped down acoustic performance at the Google store. I guess it was part of their like Pride series. Um, I've seen Jordy perform before and he's one of the amazing, extremely talented musicians. What I loved about last night is that because it was acoustic, I could actually hear his voice so clearly and it was so good. Even after touring forever, he still sounded so good. So it was great hearing him perform last night. I've also been watching the other two, a very queer programming, but that TV show is one of the funniest shows on television right now. It's on HBO, or sorry, excuse me, Max. And I've always liked it. The first two seasons were great. I've met both the kids and Streeter. I can't remember their actor names off the top of my head right this second, but I met all three of them because they came in the restaurant I was working at uh, last year. But this new season, season three is really great. It's hilarious. It's introspective into the, you know, industry, the film, film, uh, film, TV, music industry, and makes fun of it. It's just really great writing, and I'm loving the trajectory of this show. The other two. I saw Titanic on uh, Off-Broadway, which, again, another queer-esque show. If you haven't seen the play, or I guess musical, check it out. It's fantastic. It's hilarious. It's as if Celine Dion was on the Titanic. So, you know, you can probably figure out the vibe of the show from that alone. (laughs) But great, 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 great show. Everyone sounded amazing. Like the show's funny, but the actors sang their asses off. I have my first voice lesson in years next week and I cannot wait I am so excited to get back into professionally singing so stay tuned for all of that more news to come on that but 
let's get into the episode. I just wanted to throw out some, you know, happy prides. Have a full queer moment at the end of June before we jump into July and all the companies, you know, take down their rainbows. So, okay, moving on. I will be covering the legendary, legendary Hotel Chelsea. On the morning of October 12th, 1978, a 20-year-old woman was found murdered at the Chelsea Hotel by a desk clerk. He had received word that there was trouble in room 100, so he made his way to the room, and when he entered, he discovered the body of Nancy Spungen, who was in her underwear on the bathroom floor with a stab wound to her abdomen. Nancy was staying in the hotel room with her boyfriend, Sex Pistols bassist Sid Vicious, who was nowhere to be found. Nancy Spungen moved to New York City at age 17, who worked odd jobs to support herself. However, in her free time, she became a groupie following rock bands like Aerosmith, Ramones, Bad Company, etc. Which, I don't know how people have the money to be a groupie. Following bands around and seeing several tours, or some people see all of a band's tours, I don't know how you have the time or money. It might be a little easier today with like work from home jobs, but back in the 70s, I don't know. Couldn't be me. I also don't know who I would follow around like that. Like Dolly Parton and Lady Gaga are probably my top two artists, but I don't know if I would follow either around to every single tour and see every single show. I know people have done it for Lady Gaga, but I would like to see all every tour, like one show per tour, but every show in one tour, I don't know. It's a lot. But Nancy Spungen was dedicated. In December of 1976, she flew to London with the band The Heartbreakers, where she met English bassist Sid Vicious. They had a very tumultuous relationship that was filled with all kinds of drugs and partying. Very typical for bands, especially back then. When the Sex Pistols broke up in 1978, Vicious and Spungen moved into the Hotel Chelsea. Nine months later, Nancy was found dead. Police immediately suspected Sid Vicious and doubled down when they found the murder weapon in the hotel room, a Jaguar Wilderness K-11 with a 5-inch blade. A blade police tracked down to Vicious purchasing it on 42nd Street not long before the murder. He was arrested, but he pleaded not guilty. Vicious said they fought. Nancy and Sid fought that night and gave conflicting statements about her death. He started saying that he stabbed her, but he didn't mean to kill her but then changed it to he didn't remember what happened that night. And then 
it boiled down to Nancy must have fallen on the knife, which is one of the funniest explanations. I had my knife out and she just fell on my knife. What? Police found a ton of drugs in room 100 at the Hotel Chelsea, and the knife was bloodstained. Ten days after Nancy was murdered, Sid tried killing himself by cutting his wrist with a broken light bulb. So, he was brought to Bellevue Hospital, where he attempted to jump out of his hospital room window. But nurses were able to get a hold of him and prevent him from jumping through. He did say he wanted to be underground with Nancy. And while in the hospital, his lawyer was able to get Sid Vicious bail. While he was out awaiting his trial, Sid lived his life as he normally did, went to concerts, hung with friends, got high, etc., Until December 9th, two months after Nancy's death, Sid went to see a band called Scoffish, who are Chicago natives, but they were in New York City for a show. Todd Smith, who was the brother and road manager to singer Patti Smith, was helping out at the Scoffish show as a favor to the band. Sid stood front and center during the concert and continually made crude gestures to the women on stage working. One of the women was dating Todd Smith, so Todd made his way to Sid and asked him to chill, which is the correct way to handle that. Not to get upset, not to throw a fit, but to go up and be like, look, that's not cool. Let's chill the fuck out. In retaliation, Sid smashed a bottle over Todd's head, causing him to go to the hospital for stitches. That's not what to do. Do you hear that? Gentlemen, if someone tells you to chill, you chill. You don't escalate. You don't smash bottles over people's heads. I I have seen that happen once in real life. I was at a bar in Chicago, a gay bar, by the way. And it was the end of the night. Everyone had cleared out. There was probably like 15 people in this space. And my best friend and I were sitting on the side of a stage waiting for a friend of ours to come out and we were all going to leave. And while we were sitting there, all of a sudden I just hear, I like watch this guy swing his beer bottle smash it over this guy's head, and then grab him over nothing. And when I tell you it was over nothing, I like, we were sitting right there. We could hear everything we were watching. It was over nothing. But it was fucked up. Fucked up. If you can't handle yourself drunk or high, you have no business being drunk or high. Wild. Wild. Anyway, Todd went to the hospital to get stitches, and after Sid attacked Todd, frontman of Chicago band The Shadows of Night, who was also at the concert, stepped in and punched Sid in the face, then forced him out of the venue where Sid was arrested and charged with assault. 
He went to Rikers Island, where he was forced to go through a detoxification program from heroin. And after 55 days, he was released on February 1st. After his release, his friends threw him a party to celebrate, which I don't know what they're celebrating for. Yeah, he's out of prison and is detoxified, I guess, but he's suspected for murdering his girlfriend and he just beat someone up in a club. So I don't know what there is to celebrate. At this party, they, of course, did heroin. The following morning, Sid Vicious was found dead by his mother from a heroin overdose. Finding a dead body is traumatic. I'm Not that I've had that experience, but obviously it's traumatic. But to find your child dead... Like, even though Sid Vicious, you know, is not the nicest person in the world, I feel for his mother so hard. No matter the circumstances, that's horrific. After Sid Vicious was found dead, the NYPD decided to close the Nancy Sponging case since Sid was their lead suspect. However, there are some that don't believe Sid Vicious murdered his girlfriend. Some believe she died of suicide. Stabbing herself in the abdomen for attention with the idea that Sid would save her. There's theories that one of two drug dealers that visited the hotel killed Nancy. And I'm not buying either theory. I'm firmly in the belief that Sid Vicious was drugged out, drugged out of his mind, and the couple got into an argument and he stabbed Nancy, not really knowing exactly what he was doing since he wasn't in a clear headspace from the drugs. But to suggest that Nancy stabbed herself in the abdomen? What? Something's not adding up. Make it make sense. I don't, I don't get I don't get it. We'll never know for sure, of course, but room 100 at the Chelsea Hotel, Nancy Spungen was murdered. But let's talk a little bit about the history of the hotel. The Chelsea Hotel, or the Hotel Chelsea, was built between 1883 and 1885 and located at 222 West 23rd Street. <laughs> That just reminded me of that commercial, 222-22-22. But this is 222 West 23rd Street between 7th and 8th Avenue in the neighborhood of Chelsea, where I was last night for the Geordie concert. It's been a designated New York City landmark since 1966 and the National Register of Historic Places since 1977. Originally, the 12-story red brick building was private apartments, and at the time it was built, it was the tallest building in New York. 1885, 12 stories tall, the tallest building 
it was originally built as housing for artists. At first, it was incredibly successful. There was a lot going on in Chelsea. It was originally the heart of the theater district and an area everyone wanted to live in. But eventually, Upper Manhattan became more populated. The theater district shifted to where it is now and economic stress bankrupt the building. It reopened as a hotel in 1905. However, that didn't last before it was bankrupt again. New owners purchased the building in 1939 and kept the hotel afloat. The Chelsea Hotel has passed through many different hands, but most recently it was sold to a real estate developer for $80 million in 2011. The hotel stopped taking new guests, but some of the long-term residents were able to stay. Major construction was underway, making people believe that the hotel was not changing for the better and instead losing what makes the building special. It was purchased again in 2013 and once more in 2016. There has been continued construction and in 2022, the hotel quietly reopened to the public. There's the restaurant El Quixote, which opened in 1930 and stayed within the same family until 2017, which is wild. One family, obviously generations of families, but like one family owned and operated that restaurant for almost 90 years. That's crazy. And when it was sold, it was sold to the hotel. That also reopened after renovations. So maybe I'll grab a drink or something at the El Quixote. But there have been so, 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 so many notable residents. I cannot list them all. We'll be here forever. But here are some of my favorites or most notable Residents also could mean long-term or just a couple of days, but all of these people have stayed in the building at some point. We've had Mark Twain, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams. Arthur Miller, after his like public breakup with Marilyn Monroe, Tennessee Williams, Delmore Schwartz, who died in the hotel in 1966 of heart attack. Charles R. Jackson, who died of suicide in his Chelsea hotel room in 1968. Stanley Kubrick, Dennis Hopper, Uma Thurman, Elliot Gold, Elaine Stritch, Jane Fonda, Ethan Hawke, Patti Smith, Chet Baker, The Grateful Dead, Iggy Pop, Bob Dylan, Alice Cooper, Cher, Joni Mitchell, Bette Midler, Pink Floyd, Jimi Hendrix, Madonna, Leonard Cohen, Janis Joplin, Andy Warhol, 
Artist Harry Everett Smith died in his room from an ulcer and cardiac arrest. Painter Alpheus Philemon Cole died at the hotel at 112 years old, which in 1988, he was the oldest verified man alive. 112. See? Verification of celebrities has always been a thing. It's not just for the social media world. <laughs> um, musician Joe Bryath died of complications from AIDS in one of the apartments. And again, so many more people have lived in this place at one point or another. Warhol and Paul Morrissey directed the film Chelsea Girls in the hotel. Fashion designer Billy Reed used a room in the hotel as an office, studio, and showroom. After Madonna was done living there, she returned to the hotel to shoot photographs for her scandalous book, Sex. Leonard Cohen and Janis Joplin had an affair in the hotel, which Cohen wrote two songs about, named Chelsea Hotel and Chelsea Hotel 2. Very original. Bob Dylan's song, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, was written in the hotel. And he also, there's a lot of songs Bob Dylan was either writing in the hotel or was inspired by the hotel. The Kills wrote a lot of their album, No Wow, at the Chelsea. Jorma Kakonin wrote the song, Third Week in the Chelsea for Jefferson Airplane. Chelsea Hotel plays a huge role in the novel Netherland by Joseph O'Neill. Apparently, artist Jackson Pollock threw up in the dining room in 1945 during a luncheon. He was at lunch with Peggy Guggenheim and her sister Hazel Guggenheim. And after he threw up on the carpet... Hazel reportedly asked the restaurant manager to cut out that piece of carpet carpet to frame it. Now, I'm assuming they said no. I have no idea if they did or not. I sure hope they didn't. But if there's one thing I can't stand, it's spiders and puke. Another fun fact is that the novel and film 2001 A Space Odyssey was written concurrently by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. Like, I didn't realize that the movie and the novel were written at the same time and released the same year. And they worked together and did a lot of the writing in the Chelsea Hotel. The hotel has been featured in numerous TV shows and films, And even more songs than the ones I've already listed, like Midnight in Chelsea by Bon Jovi, Sarah by Bob Dylan, Chelsea Hotel by Graham Nash, Chelsea by Phoebe Bridgers. The list is extensive. Same with books. There's tons of books that either feature the Chelsea Hotel or are inspired by the Chelsea Hotel. This place is legendary legendary and I can only hope the art and artists make their way back 
to this magical place because I do think it is a very important place in pop culture and I would love to see it continue to be an important place in pop culture and in the arts world. So outside of natural death and suicide, which I've mentioned a few, Nancy Spungen was not the only the only one murdered in the Chelsea Hotel. There was photographer Billy Maynard, who regularly took photos of alt artists, the Coquettes, which that name is iconic, the Coquettes, and uh, legendary drag performer Divine. He was known most for taking, you know, underground queer photos. But he was found beaten to death in his room in 1974. And what makes me mad is I could not find anything about his murder to save my life. I searched forever. And every website I found that stated he was murdered did not talk about by whom, did not talk about why, did not talk about any police investigation. There was absolutely nothing listed about Billy Maynard's murder, which is horrible. Like, why was he beaten to death? Who beat him to death? Why was it not picked up by the news? It's just... I just expected to find at least one article that had a little more information than just he was beaten to death, but... I don't know. I don't know if anybody even researched or investigated his murder. So, but yes, Nancy Spungen, Billy Maynard, both murdered in the hotel. Another wild moment in the hotel was in March 1922, when the wife of concert pianist Atelka Graf, she cut her left hand off with a pair of sewing scissors tossed the hand under the bed and jumped from her fifth floor window, landing on a third floor balcony, ultimately dying from blood loss and or blunt force trauma. Doctors don't know how she could have stood the pain from cutting her own hand off with scissors, and they believe she must have been suffering from a nervous disease, quote-unquote, It is thought she was, quote, demented at the time. Remember, this is 1922, so those are words that were common back then. Nervous disease and demented. But I... Cutting your own hand off. It's like the movie Saw. I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could do it. I mean, maybe if you're mentally not there and you're going through some kind of breakdown that's a different story but the idea of cutting and with sewing scissors we're not talking about a you know butcher blade or a saw or something that's like quick sewing scissors sewing scissors 
And she probably jumped out the window because she was in so much pain from cutting her hand off. Horrible. I just hope she didn't do it in front of her 11-year-old daughter because they were traveling together from Italy. So I hope she didn't have to see her mom go through that because that's, that's rough. That's hard. There was also Welsh poet Dylan Thomas. He made his way to New York City to help with rehearsals for a play called Under Milkwood, which was originally a radio drama by Dylan Thomas. Just a fun fact, Igor Igor Stravinsky and Dylan Thomas met and were going to start writing together, but they didn't have the chance to really collaborate before Dylan passed away. Stravinsky composed quote, in memoriam, Dylan Thomas, unquote. Uh, He wrote this memoriam for tenor, string quartet, for trombones, and it was performed for the first time in 1954. So I just thought that was really touching. I love Stravinsky's music. The fact that they didn't really work together or anything, but he still wrote a memoriam for Dylan Thomas. That's special. Anyway, on October 9th, 1953, Dylan met with comedian Harry Locke, and they worked on the play under Milkwood. Harry noticed that Dylan was struggling with chest pains and was having terrible coughing fits. Dylan had an inhaler he would use, but it didn't always help or do much. He was also suffering from blackouts, but he felt obligated to continue writing this play and to see rehearsals and the performances, so he flew to New York City to see the project through. He landed on October 20th, and when he met with his assistant, she said he looked pale, delicate, and shaky, not his usual robust self. They checked into the Chelsea Hotel, went to a play rehearsal, then grabbed drinks at the White Horse Tavern before heading back to the hotel. The next three days, he would experience chills, a fever, and collapsed on stage during rehearsal. The 24th, he went to a doctor who injected him with cortisone, but it was, you know, just a temporary fix for a larger issue Dylan was having. It's the 50s, so I don't really know if doctors could have done anything or had the technology to really diagnose Dylan. But the following day, he was so sick, he lost his voice. And he ended up just resting most of the day. And he would go to a performance at night or a gig he had elsewhere. But his symptoms were getting worse. October 27th, he turned 39 years old. And on November 2nd, the air pollution in New York City was so bad that 200 New Yorkers died from smog. Or from, like, complications from smog. Which seems... Hard to believe. 
but apparently in 1953, 1963, and 1966, hundreds of people in New York City died from complications due to the poor air quality. That's wild, especially right now when currently I'm sitting inside my apartment while the air quality outside is not great because of the Canadian fires. Like, it's still happening. I know I talked about it, like, two or three episodes ago, but it's still an issue. Like, you walk outside and it's just hazy. It's not yellow like last time, but it's hazy. And then back fucking then, 200 plus people are dying each year from smog. And 1953 was that year Dylan Thomas was having these coughing fits and chest problems. November 4th, two days after the air pollution rolled in, Dylan Thomas's symptoms were so bad, he was admitted to the emergency room where he fell into a coma and died on November 9th. It's believed he had pneumonia, emphysema, and bronchitis, and it all got worse by the air pollution, by him smoking, and by his alcoholism. 39. That is so young. It's tragic, honestly. He didn't die in the Chelsea Hotel, but he was staying in the hotel while when he died, because he was in the hospital when he died. But he was really st- sick while staying in the Chelsea Hotel. And there have been many other deaths in the hotel, including Elmira Wilcox, who was found dead from an overdose next to a half-written love letter, which sounds incredibly heartbreaking. Like, you're gonna chug a bunch of pills and then start writing out your letter and then die halfway through, and that's how you're found? Probably by the person who was receiving the letter. That's so sad. Artist Frank Kavecki died from suicide after being robbed of all his money. And again, so many more, so many more. Like I've talked about it before. Hundreds of people die in hotels. Each hotel has their own list of deaths. Again, usually people dying of old age or natural symptoms or, you know, heart attacks or something like that or suicide. But the Chelsea Hotel has been around since the 1800s. So I can't even imagine the list of deaths, especially because it's not only a hotel, but it was, but like people live in the Chelsea Hotel. Like their whole lives, people will live in the Chelsea Hotel. On a fun note, the residents have made the space their own in outlandish ways. For example, composer George Kleinsinger imported 12-foot trees from Madagascar to transform his studio into a jungle. He also brought exotic birds, a monkey, and an 8-foot-long snake all in one apartment in the Hotel Chelsea. 
Dancer Catherine Dunham held dance rehearsals in the building and brought two full-grown lions up the elevator to make her Aida rehearsal more realistic for her dancers. Two full-grown lions. Where she got the lions, I do not know. How she was able to control two full-grown lions in an elevator, I do not know. What I do know is artists are truly insane, and I love every second of it. Some other fun stories include artist Arthur B. Davies marrying two women who didn't know about each other. The second wife lived in the Chelsea Hotel and would sing opera while she posed for his portraits. It's a fun little fact. And again, I'm already running so late in this episode because there's so much to talk about for the Hotel Chelsea. I just can't get to all the stories, but Chelsea Hotel's The walls in that building, if they could talk, I can only imagine. But let's move on to the paranormal of the building because there is a chunk there to talk about. With all of the history and famous and infamous people living there, creating and dying in the building, you can bet some of those people continue to live there to this day. So let's take a quick break and I will be right back with some paranormal sightings. The most famous and frequently seen ghost in the Chelsea Hotel is that of a woman named Mary. She is said to be... (laughs) I said Mary, and the first thing that came to my mind was Miss Mary Mac, 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 all dressed in black, 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 with silver buttons, buttons, buttons all down her back, back, back. Oh, what are the rest of the lyrics? Is that copyrighted? I feel like that's a folklore song. I have no idea. But I used to sing that as a kid all the time. Or I think of in Sister Act uh, 2, Back in the Habit, when Whoopi Goldberg is teaching the kids for the first time to sing in a choir. And she's like, let's start with Mary Had a Little Lamb. (laughs) and she goes into the whole like maybe mary didn't have a lamb (laughs) i love that movie so much i oh a lot of movies have like at least one movie in the in their you know the sequel isn't always good or the one movie in the trilogy isn't always good but sister act and sister act 2 back in the habit both flawless films Flawless films. Oh, happy day. Okay, I'm getting off track. Here we go. She said... (laughs) It is said that Mary was the survivor of a tragic event 
one that has been in the news a lot lately, and that is of the Titanic. And I'm sorry, but if you're dumb enough to put your way into the deep depths of the ocean, then you risk the chances of dying. Sorry to those billionaires, but the ocean is a dangerous place and the Titanic deserves to be left the fuck alone. If you want to see the Titanic, go watch Jack and Rose steam up a 1912 Renault-type CB Coupe DeVille instead of swimming with the fishes. Or go on YouTube and check out all the other dives people have done to see the Titanic. Or dive in a less dangerous body of water and go check out the thousands of other shipwrecks in the oceans, lakes, ponds, rivers, etc. Anyway, Mary survived the Titanic and made it to New York City where she checked into the Chelsea Hotel without her husband because he did die on the Titanic. As we all are painfully aware, women and children on the boat, on the little uh, lifeboat, what are those called? Lifeboats? Yeah. Men get to sink with the ship. But Mary was rightfully depressed after that when uh, she got to the Chelsea Hotel, horribly depressed from her husband's death and distraught from the tragic event she just experienced. She lived and died on the fifth floor of the hotel. She couldn't take the emotional pain any longer and hung herself. She is considered a vain ghost. She's constantly looking at herself in the mirror and apparently hates interacting with the living. So if you see her, ignore her. She's often seen under an archway at the west end of the building if you're ever in the Chelsea Hotel. Another prominent ghost is that of Nadia. Now, the story surrounding Nadia sounds a lot like the story about Atelka Graf. Nadia is thought to have used a pair of industrial scissors to cut her right hand off and then jump out the window because of how painful it was. And I, to that, I say, girl, duh, you cut your fucking hand off. What did you expect? Be for real. But I'm not sure if people just call this ghost Nadia when it's actually Atelka. Because both of them cut their hands off and then jumped out a window and died. So I'm just saying they sound really familiar. And I don't know how many people are cutting their hands off in the Chelsea Hotel. But two cases. It's like the idea of having two serial killers in one city at the same time. It's possible. It's happened before, but it's unlikely. Also, this just reminds me of the TV show Heroes when Hayden Panettiere cuts her pinky toe off because she realized she had superpowers and could regrow limbs or like quickly cure wounds whatever that power technically is, like regeneration or something like that. But in the show, she cuts her pinky toe off with a pair of scissors, which from my understanding, your fingers and toes, like 
if you were to bite your finger or toe off, it would be like biting into a carrot or a piece of celery. Because a lot of it's just like tiny little bones and air. Like obviously if you don't have nerve ends, that's how easy it would be. But in the show, she like watches her toe grow back within seconds. I love that show. Anyway, it said she cut Nadia cut her hand off because she was an artist who ran away with a man. They got married, had two children, and then he became an alcoholic. Where they divorced and she returned to the hotel with her kids and stayed with her parents. But because she had to help with housework and everything else in life that wasn't art, she chopped her hand off. And honestly, if every artist chopped their hand off because they had to do something that wasn't their passion, there would be millions of handless people in this world. Or half-handed people. So, like, Nadia's story is annoying because it's like, girl, we get it. You're an artist and you can't do your art every day. But, like, chill out. Apparently, Nadia roams the outside of the building desperately trying to find her way back in, but with no avail. So I do feel for Nadia. It does suck going through what she went through. A divorce is never fun. Being a single mom is never easy. Moving back in with your parents, not being able to, you know, live the life you wanted. It's hard. I get it, girl. Don't go chopping your hand off. Please don't. It's not fun for you. It's not fun for anybody who has to find the hand. Just don't do it. Another commonly seen ghost, or I should say heard ghost, is that of Larry, sometimes referred to Larry the hipster ghost. He is so set on telling as many people as he can his story That given the chance, he'll talk your ear off. Which is hilarious to me. You give this ghost any inch and he'll take a mile. He believes that everything inside the hotel is real. But the moment you leave, the outside world is an illusion. He also believes there's something underground. Like some kind of like power that resides under the hotel that gives the building creative power. Which, I'm not going to say there's not. Because there's one of those situations like that in Chicago. And it's partly in an alleyway, partly in, or like under a building that I used to work in. And that building saw tons of creative energy throughout history, like, It was a concert venue. There's an art gallery there now. It's like, it's just constant creativeness in that building, which I think is interesting. So maybe the same thing's happening for the Chelsea Hotel. People have also heard Larry say that the art in the hotel isn't the only thing that's important. The art's incredibly important and we should all stick by it. But... It's also how you conduct yourself in the hotel that really matters. To Larry. That's what Larry's saying. The art's great. The art's important. 
but you also have to conduct yourself a certain way in the Chelsea Hotel. So I guess he's like policing. (laughs) He's policing the building. I don't know about the outside world being an illusion, but I've never been inside the Chelsea, so maybe the ghost is right. Maybe we're all just living this illusion and once we get into the Chelsea Hotel, it'll all make sense. So if you've watched the TV show Celebrity Ghost Stories, you may have heard actor Michael Imperioli. Imperioli? Michael Imperioli. He was on hit show The Sopranos. But Michael experienced a lot at the Chelsea Hotel, but one certain experience stood out to him. So he tells the story on Celebrity Ghost Stories, which you can check out on YouTube. Michael had just broken up with his girlfriend in 1996 and moved into the Chelsea Hotel. A few weeks into living there, he had met someone, or some residents, a few residents, and started hanging out with them more often. One night, they asked him what floor he lived on, and he told them that he was living on floor 8. And one of the residents asked if he had met Mary yet. Michael responded, no, he had not met anyone living on the floor named Mary, but they left it at that and he figured he would run into her eventually. About two months after living in the hotel, Michael got off the elevator on floor eight and noticed that the hallway lights were dimmer than they had ever been before. He approached his door But before he could open it, he heard a light sobbing of a woman. He looked around and saw a woman at the end of the hall, in the corner, hunched over, crying. She was wearing a long black dress that Michael said you would have seen about a hundred years prior. But he also pointed out that the people living in the Chelsea were very unique And you would see all types of fashion, so he didn't think much of it at the time. Because she was so visibly upset, Michael asked if she was alright. He says the sound of her crying didn't seem like it was coming from the end of the hallway, but from all around him. The moment he called out to her, a light bulb in a sconce shattered behind his head. He turned around to look to see where the noise came from. And when he turned back around to the woman, she was gone. And of course, he continued to live at the Chelsea. I don't know if I could live in a space where something like that happened. It seems a little too much for me. A sobbing woman, and in an instance she's gone, not at the end of the hallway. That's a little much. But I wasn't there. Maybe her presence wasn't threatening. My ghost sighting I've had, that wasn't threatening, so I still stayed at work. So, you know, you never know. Michael eventually ran into those residents who told him about Mary. And one of them told him the story about her husband dying on the Titanic. However, this version has Mary's husband traveling to England with his brother to receive money or an inheritance 
and on their way back, they died on the Titanic. Mary was never on the Titanic in this version, and she was just incredibly depressed when she found out her husband died on the Titanic and then died of suicide. But Michael goes on to say in this video interview that when he saw the sobbing woman who he believes is Mary, he didn't realize she was a ghost when he saw her. So maybe that's why he didn't initially leave the hotel, but he didn't stay too much longer at that place. So I'm sure he experienced other oddities in the hotel, but that was the main one, the most vivid, you know, seeing a ghost that looks like a real person is always next level. And then when you like try to interact with the ghost, a light bulb shatters and they disappear. Like that's a lot. And there are plenty of other ghost reports at the Chelsea Hotel, such as lights turning on and off over and over and over again. Uh, The bathroom faucet continually turning on by itself. You may hear a scream of a woman coming from nowhere. Possibly even the ghost of Nancy Spungen herself. So if you visit and experience anything paranormal at the Chelsea, please send it my way. I would love to hear about it. And thank you all so much for joining me this week. Check out the socials for photos, guest info, upcoming news. I have a bonus episode coming out next week. So make sure you stay tuned for that. That's going to be exciting. Make sure you're subscribed and or following so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And please, please, please email me your paranormal experiences they don't have to be just yours. Ask your mom, your uncle, your coworker, friend, dentist, etc. Could be anything from a voice singing mbop while you're at work to looking in the mirror and seeing you've grown a full beard in just an hour. Let me know at hauntedhometownspodcast at gmail.com. I would love to read them on the podcast. And again, thank you so much for listening, and I'll meet you back here in a week for that bonus episode, because everyone loves a ghost story. The theme song is by Tyre. Follow him on Instagram at Queer Popstar, and go stream his music on any streaming platform, T-H-A-I-R. The artwork is by Pepe Munoz. Follow him on Instagram at Pepe, P.E.P.E.Munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. I got my information from Wikipedia, NBC New York, Book Riot, NYC Ghosts, Pop, Expresso, E-Online, and Far Out Magazine.